0: Week 5 Lecture, February 14th, The Information Ecosystem, Types of Sources, and Summarizing Sources Effectively. Welcome to Week 5, and Happy Valentine's Day! This week, we're talking about what's been called the information ecosystem, and friends, it's a complicated one. I won't go so far as to say it's ever been easy to avoid research landmines, But the sheer volume of information coming at us every moment of the day in modern America makes it exponentially more difficult to determine what's useful and what's not in the research process. So let's talk about what to watch out for. For our purposes as researchers, the information ecosystem is essentially all the sources and materials meaningful to us within the context of our research. It's a really broad concept that's meant to include both useful information and harmful information. As with any ecosystem, we must navigate it with caution, thinking critically about the sources we engage with and incorporate into our research. Our current information ecosystem is enormously complicated by the fact that there's so much garbage out there, which is why the authors of the Introduction to College Research text we've been using in class also talk about information hygiene and info-environmentalism. That is, being careful what we share because we want to make that ecosystem better rather than worse. Let's talk about the specific challenges of being a researcher today. Most relevant for the moment is the idea of information disorder, which includes all the dirt we have to sift through to find the diamonds. Think of things like disinformation, misinformation, malinformation, a relatively new term, propaganda, conspiracy theories, and fake news. All these forms of information disorder largely result from our emotional relationship to information. As Claire Wardle, an information disorder researcher, points out, quote, we tend to think that we have rational relationships to information, but we don't. We have emotional relationships to information, which is why the most effective disinformation draws on our underlying fears and worldviews. We're less likely to be critical of information that reinforces our worldview or taps into our deep-seated emotional responses, end quote. If that's true, then it stands to reason that we must remove or at least reduce Our immediate emotional responses to the information we find in research. Easier said than done. One significant issue in the fact-finding mission is that we're simply not sure who and what to trust. Students in their teens and 20s tend to have the greatest difficulty with trust because while they're old enough to know all information is not equally trustworthy, there's so much of it coming at them that they're not sure how to differentiate between reliable and unreliable. Enter information disorder. Producers of information, that is, writers and creators, often take advantage of that sense of overwhelm and confusion. Let's think about specific ways that might happen in the research context. First, there's simple misinformation. You find an article or blog post on your topic that contains unintentionally incorrect info. Imagine your friend tells you something that's not actually true, but they didn't do it to create problems. They were simply operating on wrong information. No one's perfect, right? One way to address this risk is by using fact-checking strategies to verify the accuracy of your sources. Then there's disinformation, which is a little more problematic because it implies malicious intent. Fake news falls under this category because it is either completely fabricated or it has been manipulated or presented out of context to seem applicable in a given situation. Conspiracy theories can also, but do not always, fall within this category. Disinformation is more like the friend who deliberately gives you incorrect info to suit their own purposes. Malinformation is probably the worst of the bunch, because it's wrong and created with the specific intent of causing harm to an individual or group. This is more like the quote-unquote friend who manipulates a photo of you to make it look like you're doing something really terrible and then spreads it around school. With all these landmines, it's no wonder student researchers aren't sure who to trust. The longer-term effect of that lack of trust is something called information cynicism. The authors of Introduction to College Research do a great job of comparing this cynicism to a more useful kind of skepticism all researchers should have. Skepticism means you're not easily convinced of something. And I assure you, there's nothing at all wrong with being skeptical. Because when you do decide to trust something, you can generally be more certain of its value. Cynicism on the other hand means you don't trust anyone or anything believing instead that people are motivated entirely by self-interest. In other words, you don't think anything is worth trusting. You can see why this would be a problem in research, right? Honestly, I can understand why one might be cynical in an information ecosystem so crowded with garbage. But it pays to move past your gut reactions to information and apply some basic critical thinking skills to determine what's trustworthy in the context of your research and what's not. I want to spend a bit of time on two specific types of misinformation and disinformation researchers are especially at risk of falling victim to. The first is conspiracy theories. One reason conspiracy theories are so appealing to so many people is because they're inherently interesting. They imply there is deep-seated mystery about a person, place, event, or phenomenon. They capture our imaginations, and once we've become convinced one is real, we feel like part of an in-the-know community. They cater to our desire to hear and tell stories. The problem with them from a research perspective is that they're generally not falsifiable. That is, there's no real way to test whether they're true or not. And if you can't actually provide evidence of truth or falsity, it's not researchable. Unfortunately, once we decide we believe something, it's incredibly hard to convince us otherwise. I would encourage you to take a look at the conspiracy chart in the PowerPoint presentation about conspiracy theories this week. I love that it shows the various kinds of theories that might appeal to us, as well as how much or how little they're based in truth. At the bottom, it starts with crazy conspiracies that actually happened, like the CIA's MK Ultra experiments and Operation Paperclip. Then as you move up the inverted pyramid, you reach the speculation line, meaning you're entering territory in which conspiracy theories haven't been proven true, but we still have questions about them. Area 51 is here because, you know, aliens. Moving further up the pyramid, we reach the leaving reality line where conspiracy theories become much more far-fetched. That is, they've been demonstrated to be false, but they're mostly harmless. Think alien abductions and the rumor that Michael Jackson is still alive. Further up, we approach the reality denial line where conspiracy theory beliefs become dangerous to the believer and others. For example, Climate change is a hoax, and the moon landing was fake. Finally, we reach the highest and most dangerous part of the pyramid, past what the chart's creator calls the anti-Semitic point of no return. These conspiracy theories promote hatred and violence toward marginalized groups. Pizzagate and Holocaust denialism are good examples. If you have no idea what any of these conspiracy theories are about, click on them on the pyramid and do a little exploring. It's fascinating stuff. Not all research topics put you at risk of falling into conspiracy theory traps, but it's helpful to know what to look for to avoid them. Really, the most important skill here is to question claims that look or sound suspicious. Where does the evidence come from? What is the chain of reasoning the source uses to back up the claim? Basically, pay attention. The second form of disinformation I want to discuss is propaganda. The thing about propaganda is it's not all bad. Many of us think of Hitler's ministry of propaganda in World War II Germany when we hear this term, but there are many, many examples of propaganda that promote positive values. All propaganda shares three common traits. One, it always has a specific agenda or goal. Two, it's always targeted toward a specific audience. Three, it always includes what Disinformation Nation calls a massaged message. That is, the content is presented in a memorable and convincing way. Like conspiracy theories, propaganda taps into the story loving parts of our brain. Propaganda generally also falls into one of four categories simplification, a better term is probably oversimplification, exaggeration, exploitation, or division. Propaganda is problematic for researchers because sometimes we don't notice we're seeing it. Really effective propagandists are good at hiding their intent and covering their tracks. Unsurprisingly, the strategies for identifying and or avoiding propaganda are similar to other good research practices. One, do a gut check and doubt what's in front of you. In other words, ask yourself why you're having a specific emotional reaction to the source and fact check, fact check, fact check. Two, filter it out. Search reliable databases for information that's not likely to include propaganda. When you're looking at regular websites, blogs or social media, get outside the filter bubble. Three, get out of the media rut we all get into. Disinformation Nation calls this finding your five. That is, find five news sources that can provide you with various perspectives on your research topic. Two you agree with, two you disagree with, and one that covers the topic from a specific angle. Use something like All Sides, which we talked about last week, to identify sources you wouldn't usually consult. The thing about all forms of disordered information is that they tap very effectively into our emotions. So, get comfortable with identifying the emotions sources bring out in you. Then, fact check and look for a variety of information sources on the topic. Which brings me to the next part of this lecture, types of sources. There are lots of ways to divide information sources, but I'm only going to talk about a few here. Almost every student is familiar with the first, popular and scholarly. In general, scholarly sources are peer-reviewed journal articles, and popular sources are everything else. Websites, blogs, newspapers, etc. In this class, I encourage you to identify both popular and scholarly sources because they're valuable in different ways. It's also important to consider in the context of your research topic, who is considered an expert. In many cases, we think of scholarly research as being produced by the real experts, but that's not necessarily true. Non-scholarly folks can absolutely be experts in an area, usually by lived experience. Consider this example. You're studying the phenomenon of perceived alien abductions. Of course, you want to pursue some scholarly resources because you want to avoid going down the conspiracy theory rabbit hole. But wouldn't it also be interesting to read articles by and about people who say they've experienced alien abductions? By virtue of their perceived experiences, they are experts on the topic in a different way. I'm going to complicate this a little bit by pointing out there's also information that falls outside the neat categories of scholarly and popular. This is typically called gray literature because it occupies the gray area between traditional peer-reviewed research sources and more popular sources. Many students confuse gray literature with scholarly publications, but they're not the same. For one thing, gray literature is typically not peer-reviewed, but it's usually held to a higher standard than popular sources in that it's often produced by verifiable experts in a field. Some examples of gray literature include conference proceedings, which are published papers from professional conferences, doctoral dissertations, government reports, and technical papers. One thing I appreciate about gray literature is that while it's produced by experts, it doesn't face the same limitations as peer-reviewed publications. One potential problem with scholarly journals is that they tend to publish studies that show a significant effect. But there are tons of studies that don't show significant effects and still have value to their respective fields. Sometimes we learn the most by finding out an intervention does not work than by finding out it does. And finally, we get to the part about writing. This week, we're practicing how to accurately and effectively summarize sources. This will be especially valuable when you're working on your annotated bibliography, which will eventually build into your literature review. You can't really discuss the arguments being made about your research topic until you understand what those arguments are. That's where this scholarly conversation comes in. You need to read, understand, and report what a source says before you can agree or disagree with it. And that requires specific skills, including being able to capture the main ideas of a 15-page article in a few sentences. We'll practice this in class though, so if you're not comfortable with summarizing yet, that's okay. I encourage you to look at the tips on how to effectively summarize sources in this week's folder. As
1: always, thanks for listening and reviewing all the stuff in this week's folder. See you next week. Chapter 3 Disinformation from Introduction to College Research learning objectives.
0: By the end of this chapter, you will be able to, one, identify the psychological, physiological, and sociological effects of disinformation, two, recognize information cynicism, and three, describe information hygiene and info-environmentalism. Information disorder, truth, and trust. According to Wardle, quote, We tend to think that we have rational relationships to information, but we don't we have emotional relationships to information, which is why the most effective disinformation draws on our underlying fears and worldviews. We're less likely to be critical of information that reinforces our worldview or taps into our deep-seated emotional responses." End quote. Background. In an information environment shaped by pervasive algorithms, the attention economy, engagement, and polarization, how do we determine truth? How do we know which sources of information to trust? These questions are becoming increasingly difficult to answer, and even more so as, quote, disinformation that is designed to provoke an emotional reaction can flourish in these spaces, end quote. Indeed, in 2016, Oxford Dictionaries selected post-truth as the word of the year, defining it as, quote, relating to or denoting circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion and personal belief, end quote. Trust. A 2020 study from Project Information Literacy confirms that the way information is delivered today, with opinion and propaganda mingled with traditional news sources, and with algorithms highlighting sources based on engagement rather than quality, has left many college students concerned about the trustworthiness of online content. Students reported that it was difficult to know where to place their trust when credible sources are buried by a deluge of poorer quality content and misinformation. One student noted that, quote, it's not that we're lacking credible information, it's that we're drowning in like a sea of all these different points out there, end quote. According to Head and others, quote, this is happening at a time when falsehoods proliferate and trust in truth-seeking institutions is being undermined. Even the very existence of truth itself has come into question. People no longer know what to believe or on what grounds we can determine what is true, end quote. Essential definitions. First, it's important to establish a shared vocabulary and terminology so that we can better understand and discuss these concepts. Claire Wardle, a world-renowned expert in this field, has used information disorder as an umbrella term for the various types of false, misleading, manipulated, or deceptive information we have seen flourish in recent years. She also created an essential glossary for information disorder with definitions for related words and phrases. For example, You'll find helpful definitions for terms like algorithm, bots, data mining, deep fakes, doxing, sock puppet, and trolling. The graphic below illustrates the scale and range of intent behind false information, from unintentionally inaccurate to deliberately deceptive and harmful. For a much more detailed explanation of each form of information disorder, from satire to fabricated content to false context, see First Draft's Essential Guide to Understanding Information Disorder. And here there's a Venn diagram labeled types of information disorder. On the left is falseness, and on the right is intent to harm. Misinformation is all the way to the left under the false category and is described as unintentional mistakes such as inaccurate photo captions, dates, statistics, translations, or when satire is taken seriously. All the way to the right under intent to harm is malinformation. Described as deliberate publication of private information for personal or corporate rather than public interest, such as revenge porn, deliberate change of context, date, or time of genuine content. And in the middle, as both false and with the intent to harm, is disinformation, described as fabricated or deliberately manipulated audiovisual content, intentionally created conspiracy theories or rumors. Web evaluation skills, a bleak track record. According to Weinberg and others in the article, Evaluating Information, quote, at present, we worry that democracy is threatened by the ease at which disinformation about civic issues is allowed to spread and flourish. And how are we doing when it comes to recognizing disinformation and navigating the information disorder landscape? Web evaluation skills, students. In 2016, a few months before the U.S. presidential election, an influential study on web literacy was completed by the Stanford History Education Group. Their report, titled Evaluating Information, the Cornerstone of Civic Online Reasoning, was concerned with the spread of disinformation online and how this might threaten our democracy. The study asked nearly 8,000 students in middle school, high school, and college to perform five web evaluation tasks. The results were quite shocking. Eighty percent of students couldn't distinguish sponsored content from news articles on websites. Sixty-seven percent of students failed to recognize potential bias in online information. Sixty-five percent of students took online images at face value. Almost all struggled to evaluate information on social media. In 2019, as yet another U.S. presidential election approached, the Stanford History Education Group conducted a similar study of civic online reasoning this time with a sample of 3,446 high school students. The results? 52% of students believed a grainy video shot in Russia constituted strong evidence of voter fraud, ballot stuffing in the US. Two thirds of students couldn't tell the difference between news stories and ads, sponsored content. 96% of students did not consider how bias impacts website credibility. For example, ties between a climate change website and the fossil fuel industry. These studies conclude by describing students' ability to reason about the information as either bleak or troubling. However, as we will see below, this trouble is not just limited to students. Web evaluation skills, experts. In 2017, the Stanford History Education Group conducted a study, Lateral Reading, reading less and learning more when evaluating digital information. Here, they assessed the web evaluation skills of presumed experts, Stanford undergraduates, history professors, and professional fact-checkers. This fascinating study confirmed that even Stanford students and professors with PhDs in history struggled to identify credible sources on the web. For example, in one task, the participants were presented with two websites that provided information on bullying, and they were given up to 10 minutes to determine which was the more reliable site. One of the websites, American Academy of Pediatrics, was from the largest professional organization of pediatricians in the world while the other site, American College of Pediatricians, had been labeled a hate group because of its virulently anti-gay stance. The result? Only 50% of the historians identified the reliable website. Only 20% of the undergrads identified the reliable website. 100% of the fact-checkers were able to quickly identify the reliable website. Note, for effective strategies, see the chapter on fact-checking information cynicism skepticism versus cynicism according to astroturfing last week tonight with john oliver quote while skepticism is healthy cynicism real cynicism is toxic end quote as defined by the oxford english dictionary skeptical means not easily convinced having doubts or reservations cynical means believing that people are motivated purely by self-interest distrustful of human sincerity or integrity. When it comes to information you encounter in your personal, professional, or academic research, a skeptical approach can be productive. For example, information skeptics might take a moment to fact check, verify, or investigate a source before using or sharing it. However, when skepticism turns to cynicism and deep distrust, research can become unproductive. Information cynics may feel powerless to identify reliable and useful sources. That is, while learning to question everything, they have begun to believe nothing, even highly credible sources of information. According to Caulfield, quote, without feeling empowered to sort fiction on the web, a lot of students are merely cynical and believe they can't trust anything, end quote. College students and cynicism. According to an anonymous student quoted in Head and Others Study, How Students Engage with News. Quote, it is really hard to know what is real in today's society. There are a lot of news sources, and it's difficult to trust any of them. End quote. Project Information Literacy, a nonprofit research institute that studies what it's like to be a student in the digital age, has published a number of influential reports that illustrate the rise in information cynicism among college students. An increasing avalanche of information. In 2018, they conducted a study of almost 6,000 students at 11 U.S. colleges. Finding that, 82% of students said that news is necessary in a democracy. 72% get news from social media on a daily basis. 68% said the sheer amount of news available to them was overwhelming. 45% found it difficult to tell real news from fake news. 36% said fake news had made them distrust the credibility of any news. Deep political polarization had made students suspicious of biased reporting. Students were highly critical of an increasing avalanche of news that appeals to emotions rather than conveying credible facts. Super cynical, a lack of trust. Information cynicism was explored more deeply in their 2020 report based on student focus groups and faculty interviews at eight US colleges. This study found that students were cynical almost to the point of believing their concerns and actions had little meaning and that it was not possible to change things. An important theme was that no news source could be trusted at face value, and there was a pervasive belief among students that they should rely on themselves to decide what to believe. Many students felt they had been taught to be critical of everything they encountered, which even extended to the authority of their teachers. One student noted, quote, we're all super cynical and untrusting of information to the point that we want to find it out ourselves. So if a teacher says, there's five rows, then we actually look, and yep, there's five rows, end quote. Interestingly, the study found that as a whole, this lack of trust in traditional authority figures meant that trust was placed in Google as the arbiter of truth, a dangerous conclusion given the nature of algorithms. One student who was also a parent described how he had tried to explain to his child that the boogeyman was not real, but his child had not believed him until a Google search confirmed it. Information Hygiene and Info-Environmentalism Information Hygiene The term information hygiene refers to the, quote, metaphorical hand-washing you engage in to prevent the spread of misinformation, end quote. This idea has gained prominence in recent years, and particularly during the COVID-19 pandemic, as we've witnessed a massive outbreak of misinformation, disinformation, hoaxes, and conspiracies surrounding the coronavirus. The World Health Organization, or WHO, and other experts have even referred to the COVID-19 pandemic as an infodemic. An epidemic of information. In their February 2020 novel coronavirus situation report, the WHO noted that the COVID-19 outbreak and response, quote, has been accompanied by a massive infodemic, an overabundance of information, some accurate and some not, that makes it hard for people to find trustworthy sources and reliable guidance when they need it, end quote. This is a stark example of the real-world impact that our online information can have. In this case, False information that we view, like, and share can actually help to shape the public perceptions about the pandemic, as well as our responses and decisions about how to behave. Can you think of any other recent examples that demonstrate the real-world impact of disinformation? So the message here is that in addition to actual hygiene, we also need to focus on information hygiene and, quote, flattening the curve of dangerous falsehoods online by taking proactive steps to reduce their spread, end quote. And flattening the curve is a term that came into prominence during COVID, referring to the public health strategy to slow the spread of the virus. Fact-checking, which we'll discuss in the next chapter, is an example of good information hygiene. Much like hand sanitizer or hand washing, it isn't a cure, but rather a prevention for the spread of misinformation. Info-environmentalism. The idea behind info-environmentalism is that if our information environment is polluted, we shouldn't abandon it. Instead, we should help clean it up. That is, if we're frustrated with the content posted on platforms like Facebook or YouTube, or with low quality Google search results, why not clean it up by posting as much reliable information as we can? Of course, a big part of this movement will involve putting pressure on the platforms themselves to act responsibly. But because the web is a collectively maintained and produced environment, we, as consumers and creators, can also participate in the process through direct action. Here are some examples of actions you might take to improve the information environment. Minimize your own misinformation footprint by being a more thoughtful person about what you post and share on social media. Do a quick fact check first. Shift your focus from arguing points to explaining things to others. Edit and improve Wikipedia articles. Create explanatory YouTube videos. Post pages on blogs or wikis that provide helpful guidance on important issues. Post better answers on question-and-answer websites like Quora or Stack Exchange. When you do share information, use evidence and cite your sources. Conclusion This chapter covered information disorder, information cynicism, information hygiene, info-environmentalism, and the broad psychological, physiological, and sociological effects of disinformation. A common thread runs through all of these concepts in that they focus on the behaviors and actions that we should take not only when consuming, but also when sharing information. In other words, our goal should be to one, minimize our own exposure to information disorders like misinformation and disinformation, and two, avoid
1: spreading those information disorders to others. In this lesson, we'll take a deep dive into
0: conspiracy theories, which plague researchers everywhere. My own students seem to have a deep and abiding interest in them. By the end of this slideshow, I'd like you to recognize characteristics common to conspiracy theories, learn about the role facts and feelings play in persuasion, and identify specific conspiracy theories. Have you ever heard the phrase, a lie can get halfway around the world before the truth can even get its boots on? I'm more familiar with the truth trying to get its pants on, but I guess they're the same thing.
2: That's a Mark Twain quote. It's true that urban legends, conspiracy theories, and bogus public health scares seem to circulate effortlessly. Yet people with important ideas often struggle to make their ideas stick. Why is that? To understand why, we have to talk about how we decide what to believe. More than facts, it turns out that stories and the feelings they elicit are a very important component of deciding what to believe. Cognitive scientists have documented over and over that emotion has a particularly strong influence when it comes to perception, attention, learning, memory, reasoning, and problem solving. Feelings are our prime driver for motivating action and behavior. It's essential to understand how stories can activate people's emotions, curiosity, and even their sense of mystery. Stories can also be very persuasive and very profitable. Why are stories so powerful? First, they're simply more memorable than facts. We naturally identify with the heroes, villains, and victims presented in stories. And all good stories have some kind of conflict. This little experiment was conducted by the authors of a great book about learning called Make It Stick by Peter Brown. They divided students into two groups. Then, they asked students to prepare a one-minute speech on whether violent crime is a serious problem in the
0: U.S., making half argue in the affirmative and half in the negative. In one study where this procedure was used, students used 2.5 statistics in their short speeches, but only one in ten told a story. Ten minutes later, the teacher gave them a blank sheet of
2: paper and asked them to write down all the ideas they could remember. Only 5% of students remembered any statistics, but 63% of them remembered the stories. When you're done reviewing this slideshow, visit the link for the video, Why Facts Don't Convince People in Blackboard. It's a brief and interesting look at some other reasons facts don't convince people. As you watch, think about the arguments, evidence, and reasoning used. According to the video, Why Don't Facts Convince People? Jot down your ideas so we can talk about them in class. A conspiracy is when a group of individuals gather to plan and execute an illegal action. For nearly two years, there have been trials going on for the people who are said to have planned and facilitated the January 6th insurrection. But conspiracy theories are a special type of story, usually quite memorable, and they've been around for thousands of years. one of the images here features a conspiracy theory that the FBI was responsible for the January 6th insurrection. Like all stories, conspiracy theories feature heroes, villains, victims, and conflict.
0: Conspiracy theories have some unique features as well. They're often stories that focus on the actions of a mysterious, secret, and powerful group of people, conspiracists, who take action that causes great harm. The lack of evidence about their actions is explained by their extreme secrecy and great power. What's the appeal of conspiracy theories? Two things. One, hanging out with a small group of people who have a special shared belief gives people a feeling of belonging. And two, it can feel good to hate a clear villain or a group of bad guys and blame them for society's problems. In a world where you might feel powerless and alienated, it can feel empowering to have an enemy that you can name and blame. Plus, stories that have a conspiracy angle are perceived as more interesting than other stories. So, there's the entertainment value to consider. I'd like you to consider the following questions, some of which we may discuss in class. What are some conspiracy theories that you have encountered recently? What different feelings have these stories evoked for you? And which of these conspiracy theories are harmless? Which ones are harmful and why? Some conspiracy theories may be harmless, but others can have effects on people's health, finances, and other decisions. Let's try to identify and reflect on some of the general qualities that make a conspiracy theory harmful or harmless.
2: I want to invite you to explore and evaluate conspiracy theories you encounter in daily life. Take a look at this conspiracy chart, which offers examples of current conspiracy theories with links to news sources. The chart offers evaluation of the relative harmfulness and truth value of various topics. Besides being visually appealing, it gives us some context about the potential lasting
0: effects of conspiracy theories. You may want to use it to consider what types of conspiracy theories you might encounter in your own research. You can click anywhere on the slide to visit the conspiracy chart
2: online. It's essential for people to make their own judgments about the truth value of conspiracy theories. You can use these three questions when examining conspiracy theories, particularly in light of your own research. What is the claim? What is the evidence source for the claim? And what is the chain of reasoning that links the evidence back to the claim? Critical thinking about conspiracy theories takes time, but it's time well spent. Let's quickly review the key ideas again. 1. People are naturally drawn to stories. This could be evolutionary. Stories, after
0: all, probably saved many hunters and gatherers from certain death. Two. Conspiracy theories spread so fast and last so long because they are, ultimately, stories.
2: I don't necessarily mean they're totally false. Stories can, and often do, contain grains of truth in them. They're especially powerful because they often involve stories about secret, powerful groups, which helps us make sense of a world where we aren't in power. Three, some conspiracy theories create significant harm to individuals, groups, and society. Though we like to think they're just fun to think about, consider the implications to groups especially impacted by them. Four, as with research, it's important to explore the claims and evidence behind conspiracy theories.
0: Please take a few minutes to write down your answers to the questions on this slide so we can talk about them in class. We won't have a lengthy discussion about them, but I'm interested in hearing your thoughts,
1: especially about how conspiracy theories might play a role in your own research. Here's the audio capture from the video, Why Facts Don't Convince People and What You Can Do About It, posted by Social Good Now on YouTube on June 26, 2017. If you've spent any
3: time on Earth, you might have noticed that humans are not the most rational of creatures. We make decisions based mostly on emotions instead of facts, and a lot of times we're guided by tribal instinct. Part of the problem is that the human brain evolved to help us survive, and not necessarily to help us be factually accurate. So we often respond better to social and tribal dynamics than to intellectual analysis. For example, if someone's tribe believes that Obama is a secret Muslim born in Kenya, That person probably thinks the hard proof of his u.s birth certificate is fake that conclusion is neither rational nor accurate but from a tribal perspective it makes sense it's safer to agree with your tribe and stay united ideologically even if you're wrong about the facts than to disagree and isolate yourself another part of the problem is that our brain is constantly protecting our worldview and sense of identity so when our worldview is challenged that same part of the brain that processes physical danger gets activated. This is why people sometimes react so aggressively to information that proves them wrong. And this is why it's often so hard to have an intelligent political debate. Several studies have also shown that there is a backfire effect that happens when people encounter facts that contradict their current beliefs. They actually become more convinced of their original ideas. So fighting ignorance with facts is like fighting a grease fire with water. It seems like it should work, but it actually just makes the whole thing worse. Lastly, there's the problem of lack of empathy. Several studies have found that when humans are divided into groups of any kind, we instinctively become less empathetic to members of other groups. That means that for survival's sake, we might instinctively empathize less with other races, other nationalities, and even other sports teams. This instinctive dehumanization of other groups is what makes things like slavery and genocide possible in our society. So. What can you do? If you want someone to consider factual information that clashes with their beliefs, first you have to prevent their brain from seeing you as a personal threat. So look for ways to identify the person as part of your tribe and you as part of theirs. Hey, we're part of the same family. Hey, we're both parents. Hey, we both still play Pokemon Go, whatever. Anything that communicates that you're part of the same tribe. That's the first step. Second, consider the possibility that you may be wrong. Maybe the facts are not on your side, in which case admitting it will help you model to the other person that it's okay to be wrong. I understand that none of this is easy or smooth, but if we want to continue to function as a stable society, we have to learn to get past our own natural biases. Only when that happens, we will be
1: able to move forward towards a better future. Peace. Politics, Psychology, History, and Sociology of Conspiracy Thinking by
0: Stephen Mintz from the Inside Higher Ed website published January 22, 2024. A quick note that this is an abridged version of the article. I've cut out the second page and some paragraphs from the third and fourth pages because they weren't really relevant to our class. Conspiracy thinking, which was once played for laughs, has in recent years grown more ominous. Tales of UFOs and Area 52, a staged moon landing, Elvis Presley in an East Texas nursing home, and men in tinfoil hats have given way to more dangerous or threatening quote unquote, theories. These include climate change denial, false allegations of widespread election fraud and election rigging, belief in a deep state, a hidden and powerful group within the government working to undermine or control national policies. Grossly exaggerated assertions of widespread and covert influence by foreign nations in domestic elections, policy decisions, or public opinion. Unfounded claims about COVID-19's origins, the safety and effectiveness of vaccines, and the motives behind public health measures including lockdowns and mask mandates. Claims of false flag operations, media manipulation, and the intentional spread of misinformation to sow fear and division have certainly moved from society's fringes into the political mainstream. To be sure, this country has, in recent years, been in the grip of a host of conspiracy fears. Birthers, Russian efforts to subvert elections, Chinese espionage, and social media manipulation on TikTok. In fact, there is no conclusive evidence to suggest that belief in conspiracy theories has increased over time, even though it's certainly the case that the number of books about conspiracy thinking has risen, including Kurt Anderson's Fantasyland, How America Went Haywire, Samuel Chase Cole's Paradigms of Paranoia, Edward Curtin's Seeking Truth in a Country of Lies, Laura Kipnis's Unwanted Advances, Sexual Paranoia Comes to Campus, and Michael Shermer's Why People Believe Weird Things. Nor is there any clear-cut evidence that the less educated are more prone to conspiracy thinking than those with more education. In fact, There is some evidence that the highly educated are better able to rationalize flawed beliefs. I recently waded into the vast literature of conspiracy theorizing and encountered several recurring themes. Paranoid thinking is not confined to a small subset of the population. Paranoia, some recent studies suggest, is as common as anxiety and depression. As much as a quarter of the population harbors paranoid thoughts at some point in their lives. The appeal of conspiracy mindedness is psychological, social, and cultural. In the face of uncertainty and contradictory information, conspiracy theories offer straightforward explanations for events. Cognitive bias also contributes to a propensity to search for conspiracies. Human cognition is prone to biases like pattern recognition and agency detection, where we tend to see patterns in random information and assume purposeful actions behind events. A belief in conspiracy theories may provide a sense of exclusivity. Individuals may believe that they have access to special knowledge or truths that others don't see. For those who distrust governments, mainstream media, and other authorities, conspiracy theories provide alternative narratives that align with their skepticism. This distrust can stem from past deceptions, real or perceived, by these entities. Being part of a community that shares these beliefs can strengthen one's identity and sense of belonging. Times of crisis and anxiety, such as during pandemics or economic downturns, can increase the appeal of conspiracy theories, as can periods of rapid social and cultural change. Conspiratorial thinking is aggravated by social alienation, anomie, societal fragmentation, and stress. It can provide a simple explanation for complex or frightening events. Conspiracy theories allow individuals to project external threats and blame others for their problems, or for the world's problems, rather than confronting more complex or unsettling realities. Sometimes conspiracy theories prove true. Some purported conspiracies are probably false. Was there a serious plan for a Wall Street putsch in 1933 to oust Franklin D. Roosevelt from the White House and install Smedley Butler as dictator? Probably not. The New York Times labeled claims of severe danger to the president a gigantic hoax. But other events were not figments of overactive imaginations. The assassination of Abraham Lincoln, the Watergate break-in, CIA involvement in plots to overthrow the democratically elected governments of Iran in 1953, Guatemala in 1954, the Democratic Republic of the Congo in 1960, and Chile in 1973. All are examples of real-world conspiracies. American culture has long provided fertile ground for conspiracy theorizing, From fears of the Illuminati before the American Revolution to anxieties about Freemasonry during the 1820s, popist plots and Mormonism during the 1840s and 1850s, and the slave power conspiracy late in the antebellum era, conspiracy thinking was firmly embedded in American popular culture during its formative era. Certain themes recur in conspiracy thinking in the United States. Anxieties over an enemy within engaging in acts of subversion. Threats posed by foreigners or a foreign power or foreign ideologies to the nation's cultural or political integrity. Worries about internal divisions that are caused by un-American forces. These ideas have reappeared repeatedly over the course of U.S. history. The use of conspiratorial rhetoric in political discourse is often tactical. Repeatedly, U.S. politicians and propagandists have voiced fears of a self-seeking elite pursuing its own special interests at the public's expense or a foreign power or entity intent on undermining American democracy or a monster institution engaged in abusive or monopolistic practices or a wicked, immoral, licentious, or impious clique intent on undermining public morality or a group engaged in acts of subversion dividing the nation from within. Populist rhetoric pitting us against them privileged elites against common folk or radical activists against a silent majority have been an inescapable element in American political discourse, a rhetorical style to mobilize voters since the 1820s. Neither U.S. society nor democratic societies are more prone to conspiratorial ideas than any other society. Conspiracy theories have been used in highly diverse societies to explain complex social and political events, often scapegoating marginalized groups or perceived enemies and reflecting broader societal fears and tensions. Examples include accusations that the so-called mad monk Grigory Rasputin exerted undue influence over Tsar Nicholas II, the claims in the fabricated Protocols of the Elders of Zion of a Jewish plan for global domination, and the stab-in-the-back myth in post-World War I Germany. Historian Paul Preston's 2020 study, Architects of Terror, shows how anti-Semitic beliefs were weaponized to justify and propagate the Franco overthrow of liberal Spain. Even if there is no reason to think conspiracy thinking has increased over time, current circumstances do provide fertile soil for such a mentality. As Anna Merlin wrote in her 2019 book, Republic of Lies, quote, our contemporary conditions are a perfect petri dish for conspiracy movements, a durable, permanent, elastic climate of alienation and resentment. All the while, an army of politicians and conspiracy peddlers has fanned the flames of suspicion to serve their own ends, end quote. The rise of the internet and social media platforms has surely made it easier to access and disseminate conspiracy theories, while algorithms can create echo chambers that reinforce these beliefs. Institutions and organizations that historically provided a sense of belonging and connection, from extended families to churches and bowling leagues, have declined. At the same time, we exist in a society in which gaslighting is widespread, and psychological manipulation by marketers advertisers, and influencers who target preteen girls is normal business practice. Any hopes of wholly eliminating conspiracy thinking are quixotic. The human mind is programmed to detect and recognize patterns and will inevitably identify patterns where none exist. In situations of high uncertainty, the human brain tends to fill in gaps. Colleges can and should combat conspiracy mindedness by fostering critical thinking, providing instruction in media literacy, and teaching the psychology of conspiracy theorizing. But don't expect these to be a panacea. In fact, there are some studies that find that highly educated adults are even more prone to accepting misinformation and conspiracy thinking than those with less education, since they are better able to, quote, rationalize their incorrect beliefs, end quote. Ironically, the very elements that render us susceptible to conspiracy thinking, curiosity, inquisitiveness, and pattern recognition, are also central to the humanities. My own discipline, history, seeks not just to recover or piece together the past, but to find direction and meaning in history. The humanities disciplines, as interpretive enterprises, seek to contextualize, analyze, elucidate, illuminate, and yes, read between the lines. Uncovering patterns can be a force for good or bad. It depends, as we hear today, on context and on our objectives. Conspiracy thinking is a trap it exploits people's cognitive biases and various logical fallacies to distort reasoning. It inevitably results in oversimplification, exaggeration, finger pointing, and finger wagging. A college education should help students resist the allure of conspiracy thinking and understand its consequences. As the sociologist Musa al Garbi has written, quote, the best way to get an accurate picture of something is to shift analytic postures, to try to analyze the same phenomenon from multiple somewhat incommensurate angles." I wholeheartedly agree. Teach your students how to critically evaluate evidence, information, and arguments. Encourage them to avoid echo chambers and consider multiple viewpoints. Urge them to reflect on the emotional and psychological needs that can make simplistic ideas appealing. These practices will not only help them avoid falling into conspiratorial thinking, but will teach them how to interpret
1: texts, artworks, philosophical arguments, and history in much more sophisticated and nuanced ways. Selections from Chapter 7 Types of Sources
0: from Critical Thinking in Academic Research Fact or Opinion. Thinking about the reason an author produced a source can be helpful to you because that reason was what dictated the kind of information they chose to include. Depending on that purpose, the author may have chosen to include factual, analytical, and objective information, or, instead, it may have suited their purpose to include information that was subjective, and therefore less factual and analytical. The author's reason for producing the source also determined whether they included more than one perspective, or just their own. Authors typically want to do at least one of the following—inform and educate, persuade, sell services or products, or entertain combination of purposes. Sometimes authors have a combination of purposes, as when a marketer decides they can sell more smartphones with an informative sales video that also entertains us. The same is true when a singer writes and performs a song that entertains us, but that they intend to make available for sale. Other examples of authors having multiple purposes occur in most scholarly writing. In those cases, authors certainly want to inform and educate their audiences, but they also want to persuade their audiences that what they're reporting and or postulating is a true description of a situation, event, or phenomenon, or a valid argument that their audience must take a particular action. In this blend of scholarly authors' purposes, the intent to educate and inform is considered to trump the intent to persuade. Why Intent Matters Authors' intent usually matters in how useful their information can be to your research project, depending on which information need you're trying to meet. For instance, when you're looking for resources that will help you actually decide how to answer your research question or evidence for your answer that you'll share with your audience, you will want the author's main purpose to have been to inform or educate their audience. That's because, with that intent, they are likely to have used facts where possible, multiple perspectives instead of just their own, little subjective information, and seemingly unbiased, objective language that cites where they got the information. The reason you want that kind of resource when trying to answer your research question or explain that answer is that all of those characteristics will lend credibility to the argument you're making with your project. Both you and your audience will simply find it easier to believe, will have more confidence in the argument you're making, based on your selected resources. Resources whose authors intend only to persuade others won't meet your information need for an answer to your research question or evidence with which to convince your audience. That's because they don't always confine themselves to facts. Instead, they tell us their opinions without backing them up with evidence. If you used those sources, your readers would notice and not believe your argument. Fact versus opinion versus objective versus subjective. Need to brush up on the differences between fact, objective information, subjective information, and opinion? Fact. Facts are useful to inform or make an argument. Examples. The United States was established in 1776. The pH levels in acids are lower than pH levels in alkalines. Beethoven had a reputation as a virtuoso pianist. Opinion. Opinions are useful to persuade, but careful readers and listeners will notice and demand evidence to back them up. Examples. That was a good movie. Strawberries taste better than blueberries. George Clooney is the sexiest actor alive. The death penalty is wrong. Beethoven's reputation as a virtuoso pianist is overrated. Objective. Objective information reflects a research finding or multiple perspectives that are not biased. Examples. Several studies show that an active lifestyle reduces the risk of heart disease and diabetes. Studies from the Brown University Medical School show that 20-somethings eat 25% more fast food meals at this age than they did as teenagers. Subjective. Subjective information presents one person or organization's perspective or interpretation. Subjective information can be meant to distort, or it can reflect educated and informed thinking. All opinions are subjective, but some are backed up with facts more than others. Examples. The simple truth is this. As human beings, we were meant to move. In their 30s, women should stock up on calcium to ensure strong, dense bones and to ward off osteoporosis later in life. In this quote, it's mostly the should that makes it subjective. The objective version of the last quote would read, Studies have shown that women who begin taking calcium in their 30s show stronger bone density and fewer repercussions of osteoporosis than women who did not take calcium at all. But perhaps there are other data showing complications from taking calcium. That's why drawing the conclusion that requires a should makes the statement subjective. Popular, professional, and scholarly. We can also categorize information by the expertise of its intended audience. Considering how expert one has to be to understand the information can indicate whether the source has sufficient credibility and thoroughness to meet your information need. There are varying degrees of expertise. Popular. Popular newspaper and magazine articles, such as the Washington Post, the New Yorker, and Rolling Stone, are meant for a larger general audience, are generally affordable, and are easy to purchase or available for free. They are written by staff writers or reporters for the general public. Additionally, they are about news, opinions, background information, and entertainment. More attractive than scholarly journals, with catchy titles, attractive artwork, and many advertisements. References may be hyperlinks rather than formal APA citations. Sources cited may be people instead of journal articles. They're published by commercial publishers, and they're published after approval from an editor. For information on using news articles as sources, from newspapers in print and online, broadcast news outlets, news aggregators, news databases, news feeds, social media, blogs, and citizen journalism, see news as a source. Professional. Professional magazine articles from sources like Plastic Surgical Nursing and Music Teacher are meant for people in a particular profession and are often accessible through a professional organization. Staff writers or other professionals in the targeted field write these articles at a level and with the language to be understood by everyone in the profession. Additionally, they're about trends and news from the targeted field, book reviews, and case studies, often less than 10 pages, some of which may contain footnotes and references, usually published by professional associations and commercial publishers, and published after approval from an editor. Scholarly journal articles from journals like Plant Science and Education and Child Psychology are meant for scholars, students, and the general public who want a deep understanding of a problem or issue. Researchers and scholars write these articles to present new knowledge and further understanding of their field of study. Additionally, they are where findings of research projects, data and analytics, and case studies usually appear first, often long, usually over 10 pages, and always include footnotes and references, usually published by universities, professional associations, and commercial publishers, and published after approval by peer review or from the journal's editor. See scholarly articles as sources for more detail. Publication formats and the information life cycle We can also categorize sources by publication format. That's because of the difference in time and effort sources in each format require for their production. Sources in particular formats simply cannot exist until there has been enough time for people to create them. The result is that the sources that are created toward the end of the information life cycle may come to very different conclusions about the event than did those sources created early on. Sometimes the information presented in the later formats is more valid and reliable than what is in those produced earlier. A very good example is that conclusions about the Columbine High School shooting in 1999 and the causes of that tragedy reached by books which took years to complete after the event, were likely to be very different than the conclusions reached by news coverage created early on. For instance, many early reports concluded that the two teens responsible for the shooting had been shunned by their classmates, and that it was the pain of their exclusion that had moved them to take revenge. Consequently, many K-12 schools nationwide took steps to try to ensure that all students felt included in their student bodies. But more time-consuming reporting concluded that the boys were not shunned, one had had a date for prom activities just days before, and that it was mental illness that made them kill their classmates. This information life cycle video explains what kinds of information sources about an event can exist at any point in time during and after
1: that event.
4: What happens to the information once an event occurs? This is the information life cycle zone. For example, a highly evolved talking mutant reptile walks out of Lake Mead, Nevada. Moments later, images are posted on social media. Tweets of fear. People may be scared at first. Later that day, a news crew is on the scene, talking to witnesses and checking facts for TV and radio. News coverage continues in the following days. Mutant is on talk show, Good Morning America. People begin to see the mutant integrating into human society. A week or so after the event, popular magazines begin to do in-depth pieces on the mutant. Given more time, researchers begin to publish academic journal articles on very specific topics like diseases and mutants, the environmental impacts of mutations, mutant communications, and green and yellow fashion trends. During the year following the event, books and government publications address different topics related to the mutant, like water treatment in mutant habitat, the economic impact of medical mutation technology, and mutant culture. Years after the first mutant is discovered, Reference books like encyclopedias and biographies include entries on the event, what followed, and how researchers of different types have studied the mutants. There may be bibliographies published that bring together lists of all the information published about the mutant. And all this time, the conversation never really stopped, nor did news stories about the mutant in society. We have reached the end of the information life cycle. Or have we?
2: A
0: closer look at common formats. Books, usually a substantial amount of information, published at one time and requiring great effort on the part of the author and a publisher. Magazines and journals, Published frequently, containing lots of articles related to some general or specific professional research interest, and edited. Newspapers. Each is usually a daily publication of events of social, political, and lifestyle interest. Websites. Digital items, each consisting of multiple pages produced by someone with technical skills or the ability to pay someone with technical skills. Articles. Distinct, short, written pieces that might contain photos and are generally timely. Timeliness can mean that it's something of interest to readers at the point of publication, or that it's something the writer is thinking about or researching at a given point in time. Conference papers, a written form of papers delivered at a professional or research related conference. Authors are generally practicing professionals or scholars in the field. Blogs, frequently updated websites that do not necessarily require extensive technical skills and can be published by virtually anyone for no cost to themselves other than the time they devote to content creation, usually marked by postings that indicate the date when each was written. Documentaries Works, such as a film or television program, presenting political, social, or historical subject matter in a factual and informative manner, and often consisting of actual news films or interviews accompanied by narration. Online videos Short videos produced by anybody, with a lot of money or a little money, about anything for the world to see. Common sites for these are YouTube and Vimeo. Podcasts, digital audio files produced by anyone and about anything that are available for download, often by subscription. Scholarly articles as sources. Articles in scholarly journals are valued for several reasons. First, they're usually trustworthy because their publication process includes a peer review that helps ensure their accuracy and contribution to their disciplines. In addition, they often contain the first reports of new, original research, which means their sections on methodology, data, analysis, and interpretation are primary sources. Alternatively, some scholarly journal articles consist of literature reviews, or summaries of multiple research studies done in the past on particular subjects of current interest. The review of other important research makes those articles very helpful secondary sources. Peer-reviewed sources. The most respected scholarly journals are peer-reviewed, which means that experts in their field other than the author and editor check out each article before it can be published. It's their responsibility to help guarantee that new material is presented in the context of what is already known, that the methods the researcher used are the right ones, and that the article contributes to the field. For those reasons, peer-reviewed articles are more likely to be credible. Peer-reviewed journal articles are the official scholarly record, which means that if it's an important development in research, it will probably turn up in a journal article eventually. In their article, Peer Review in Scientific Publications, Benefits, Critiques, and a Survival Guide, Kelly, Sadeghieh, and Cosro provide a longer explanation of the peer-review process, which concludes that it's good, but not perfect. Parts of a scholarly article. The articles you use for your assignments must also be relevant to your research question, not just credible. Reading specific parts of an article can help save you time as you decide whether an article is relevant. This video, A Guided Tour of a Scholarly Article, describes the common parts of scholarly articles.
5: Welcome to A Guided Tour of a Scholarly Journal article. The parts you'll find in nearly every article include the title, author information, abstract, introduction, literature review, conclusion, references, and the body of the article. The title is one of the main ways of identifying an article. Many titles give you a good idea of what the article is about. A list of the author or authors will be included as well. Some articles may have multiple, or even dozens in the sciences, of authors. Many articles give contact information and affiliation, in other words, where the author works. The abstract is a brief summary of what the article is about. Read this to determine if the article is likely to contain relevant information. The abstract may appear in research databases. The introduction is a general overview of what will follow in the article. It may have information such as background, a brief topic overview, or other pertinent information useful to know before reading the article. Many articles will have a literature review which contains what others have found on the same or related topics. Many of the items used will be from other scholarly journals, but may also be from other sources such as books, conference papers, web pages, and more. Many papers will have a conclusion section which offers a summary of the findings. Like the abstract, this is another good section to read to get a general idea of what the article is about. Most scholarly articles will have references, other information resources the author or authors referred to in the article. If there is a literature review, references will definitely be somewhere. References may be listed as footnotes at the bottom of the page where mentioned or references may be found as in-text references with the bibliography at the end of the article. In-text references usually have at least the author or author's names and a year. The references are excellent places to look for more information on the topic. Some databases even list the references found in the articles. The body forms the majority of the article. It may have multiple sections, including some of the sections mentioned earlier. It may contain images, charts, graphs, and other non-text information. Other may appear often in the body. For example, discussions of results, methodology, appendices, images, charts, graphs, and data, grant or funding information, and future directions. Let's look at some articles.
1: Reading a scholarly article usually takes some effort. Read Michael Fossmeyer's How to Read a Scientific Paper for tips on how to do
0: this. Finding scholarly articles. Most scholarly articles are housed in specialized databases. Libraries, public, school, or company, often provide access to scholarly databases by paying a subscription fee for patrons. For instance, most libraries provide access to databases via databases lists or research guides. These databases are made available free to people affiliated with the university. For more information, including how to search databases, see the section on specialized databases. Most databases on the web are actually search engines, such as Google Scholar, a free scholarly search tool available to all who have access to the internet, and it provides some scholarly articles. For more information, see our section on using Google Scholar. News as a source. News sources can provide insights on events that scholarly sources may not, or that will take a long time to get into scholarly sources. For instance, news sources are excellent for finding out people's reactions, opinions, and prevailing attitudes around the time of an event. So whether news sources are good for your assignment depends on what your research question is. You'll find other relevant information at sources and information needs. News is a strange term, because even when the information is old, it's still news. Some sources are great for breaking news, some are great for aggregated or compiled news, and others are great for historical news. While the news was transmitted for centuries only in newspapers, the news is now transmitted in all formats, via radio, television, and the internet, in addition to print. Almost all newspapers have internet sites today. News must be brief because much of it gets reported only moments after an event happens. News reports occur early in the information life cycle. See publication formats and the information life cycle for more information. When are news sources helpful? You need breaking news or historical perspectives on a topic, what people were saying at the time. You need to learn more about a culture, place, or time period from its own sources, or you want to keep up with what's going on in the world today. When are news sources of limited use? You need a very detailed analysis by experts, or you need sources that must be scholarly or modern views on a historical topic. Mainstream and non-mainstream news sources. Mainstream American news outlets stick with the tradition of trying to report the news as objectively as possible. That doesn't mean the reports are perfectly objective, but they are more objective than the non-mainstream sources. As a result, mainstream news sources are more credible than non-mainstream sources. Some examples of mainstream American news outlets include the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Boston Globe, the Chicago Tribune, the Los Angeles Times, ABC News, CBS News, NBC News, PBS News, and NPR News. News from non-mainstream American news outlets is often mixed with opinions. One way they frequently exhibit bias is that they leave out pertinent facts. Some examples of non-mainstream American news outlets include Fox News, MSNBC, Gawker, and Reddit. Types of news sources: Press services, news outlets, print, broadcast, and online get a lot of their news from these services, such as Reuters or Associated Press the (AP), which make it unnecessary for individual outlets to send their own reporters everywhere. Services are so broadly used that you may have to look at several news outlets to get a different take on an event or situation. News aggregators: Aggregators don't have reporters of their own, but simply collect and transmit the news reported by others. Some sources pull news from a variety of places and provide a single place to search for and view multiple stories. You can browse stories or search for a topic. Aggregators tend to have current, but not archival news. Google News and Yahoo News are examples. Newspaper sites. Many print newspapers also have their own websites. They vary as to how much news they provide for free. Take a look at these examples. The Boston Globe, China Daily, Global Edition, Pensacola News Journal, The New York Times, St. Cloud Times, Star Tribune, The Times of London, and USA Today. News Databases Search current, recent, and historical newspaper content in databases provided by libraries. Most libraries offer news databases to students, staff, and faculty. They may include the Alternative Press Index, The New York Times from 1853 to the present, ProQuest Global Newsstream, and Regional Business News. Broadcast News Sites Although broadcast news from radio and television is generally consumed in real time, such organizations also offer archives of news stories on their websites. However, not all of their articles are provided by their own reporters. Some originate from the press services, Reuters, and AP. Here are some examples of broadcast news sites. ABC News, BBC, CNN, and NPR News. Social Media. Most of the news outlets listed above contribute to Twitter and Facebook. It's customary for highly condensed announcements in these venues to lead you back to the news outlets website for more information. However, how credible tech companies such as Facebook, Twitter, and Google are with news is in serious doubt now that their lawyers have testified to the US Congress that more than 100 million users may have seen content actually created by Russian operatives on the tech companies platforms leading up to the 2016 US presidential election. Read more about their testimony at NPR and the New York Times. Blogs. Sometimes these are good sources for breaking news, as well as commentary on current events and scholarship. Authors who write more objectively elsewhere can share more insights and opinions, more initial questions, and findings about a study before they're ready to release definitive data and conclusions about their research. News feeds. You can get updates on specific topics or a list of major headlines regularly sent to you so you don't have to visit sites or hunt for new content on a topic. Look for links that contain headings
1: such as these to sign up for news feeds, RSS feeds, news feeds, news alerts, and table of contents alerts. Gray literature from the California State University
0: Fullerton Pollack Library. What is gray literature? Gray literature is, quote, information produced on all levels of government, academics, business, and industry in electronic and print formats not controlled by commercial publishing, for example, where publishing is not the primary activity of the producing body, end quote, as defined by the Gray Literature Network Service in 2004. Simply put, gray literature consists of materials that are unpublished or have been published outside of the typical commercial or academic publishing environment. It's often more difficult to find and obtain than the published literature, and may include such things as conference proceedings, policy studies and reports, white papers, annual reports, draft legislation, and think tank reports. How is gray literature used? Gray literature can be used in a wide variety of ways, depending on the type. Most offer data and results which can supplement original research. Many detail policies or procedures which can be used to improve existing methods. For the most part, gray literature can be used in the same way as scholarly literature by setting a foundation on which other types of research can be conducted. Examples of gray literature. Examples of gray literature include conference abstracts, presentations, proceedings, government publications, reports such as white papers, working papers, and internal documentation, dissertations and theses, patents, regulatory data, unpublished trial data, and policies and procedures. For more information on types of gray literature, visit the Document Types in Gray Literature page from GrayNet International. Why look for it if gray literature isn't peer-reviewed? Gray literature can be an important source of data and information. Though not published in the traditional academic outlets, it's produced by researchers in the field. It can be made available more quickly and without the rigid format of academic publishing. Gray literature can also offer greater detail than other types of literature. In addition, it can reduce positive publication bias. Negative results are often reported in the gray literature, but not in published work. What is publication bias? Within scientific publishing, the outcome of a paper can often affect the decision by a journal or authority to publish it. Publishers often show a strong bias towards publishing studies which show some sort of significant effect over studies which do not show the expected outcome. This is known as publication bias. Publication bias can have a serious impact on the existing literature, since studies with and without significant findings are usually conducted in the same manner. Since studies without significant findings are much less likely to get published, it reduces the impact that the study could have on a given discipline. However, knowing that an intervention had no effect is just as important as knowing that it did have an effect when it comes to making decisions for practice and policy making. Thus, gray literature can be critical when conducting meta-analyses. Identifying gray literature. How can I tell if it's gray literature? Gray literature can sometimes be difficult to identify when using research databases. Often, you can look at the document type to see if it's a government report or a dissertation but identifying other types of gray literature can be tricky. One common issue is to have citations or abstracts for spoken or poster presentations show up in your list of results, even when peer reviewed journals is selected. Upon first look, these can look like research articles, but are often not attached to a digital object. This can be extremely frustrating when you're searching for peer reviewed journal articles on a particular topic and you locate a resource, which you think could be ideal only to find that it doesn't exist in any accessible sense. Here are some methods to identify gray literature records in the databases. Journal title. Post-recession and presentation abstracts are frequently posted in special issues of academic journals. These special issues often are titled conference proceedings. Article title. Also look out for a specific date or date range mentioned in the title, which suggests a presentation at a conference rather than an article. At this point on the page, there are visual explanations of how to search and identify gray literature on OneSearch, EBSCOhost, ProQuest, and Web of Science, which are all common databases used in research. So I definitely recommend you take a look at those visuals on this page. What to do when you found gray literature. If you locate gray literature and it's relevant to your topic, you might wish to include it in your resources, depending on the assignment. If you're putting together a literature review, Using grey literature is very much recommended. However, sometimes you may locate a citation or abstract for a resource that looks like it could be very helpful, but it doesn't have anything attached to it. While this can be frustrating, there are ways to pursue similar resources. 1. Look to see if the authors published anything similar. If you're unable to locate a paper or poster attached to the citation, you might want to look up the author's names in a more traditional search engine, such as databases or OneSearch. Since oral and poster sessions often result in published work, you may find that the author has continued their research or altered their research slightly for publication. Note, remember that the publication process for academic literature takes some time. If the gray literature is less than a year old, it is unlikely to have been expanded to a complete research article in that time. 2. Reach out to the authors directly. In the case of most gray literature, author contact information or institutional affiliation is listed. In many cases, these authors are happy to discuss their findings or even share data sets. 3. Keep track of keywords and phrases. There's a chance that even if the author of grey literature never published their findings in a traditional sense, someone else has conducted similar research. As
1: always, keeping track of specific keywords or phrases used with your topic can be critical for finding similar research. Summarizing. How to effectively summarize the work of others from the Simon Fraser University
0: Library Student Learning Commons. Academic writing requires you to research the work of other scholars, develop your own ideas on the topic of your research, and then to think about how your ideas relate to the scholarship that you've researched. Three main ways of responding are to generally agree, generally disagree, or both agree and disagree with another author's perspective on a subject. You can think of agreeing and disagreeing as being like saying, okay, but... Being able to effectively summarize the work of other researchers will help you both to determine your own position and also clearly communicate the connections between your ideas and the ideas of others. In other words, knowing how to effectively summarize the ideas of others helps you to bring those ideas into dialogue with your own. Strategies for summarizing. When you summarize, you explain the main ideas from someone else's work. Note that you must include citation information for summaries. Think of your citation as showing your reader where they can find the original or full version of the work that you've summarized. In They Say, I Say, Gerald Graff and Kathy Birkenstein describe summarizing as, quote, putting yourself in the shoes of someone else, end quote. They use this description because effective summarizing requires that you engage with and aim to understand someone else's ideas or perspective, even if you disagree. It can be helpful to think of a summary as a brief description of someone else's work That they themselves would recognize and consider to be a fair representation. Try these steps for writing summaries. 1. Select a short passage, about 1 to 4 sentences, that supports an idea in your paper. 2. Read the passage carefully to fully understand it. 3. Take notes about the main idea and supporting points you think you should include in your summary. Include keywords and terms used by the author, and think too about how the source ideas are relevant to the arguments that you are presenting in your paper. 4. Using only your notes, explain the original author's main ideas to someone else. Then explain how those ideas support or conflict with your own argument. 5. Reread the original source. Is there important information that you've forgotten or misremembered? Is your summary very similar to the original source? 6. Add in-text citation and check the required formatting style. A summary case study. An effective summary is a way of communicating to your reader what the source text is about. However, even while it's important to put yourself in the shoes of the original author, you also need to know what it is that you're arguing in your paper that has led you to include this other perspective. Because a scholarly article is rarely about one simple thing, knowing what you are arguing will help you to determine the most important ideas of the original source for your paper. Here's an example of an ineffective, list-like summary followed by an effective summary. Original source to be summarized, quote, before 1994, diabetes in children was generally caused by a genetic disorder. Only about 5% of childhood diabetes cases were obesity-related, or type 2 diabetes. Today, according to the National Institutes of Health, type 2 diabetes accounts for at least 30% of all new childhood cases of diabetes in this country. Not surprisingly, money spent to treat diabetes has skyrocketed too. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention estimate that diabetes accounted for $2.6 billion in healthcare costs in 1969. Today's number is an unbelievable $100 billion a year." End quote. And this passage is from an article called Don't Blame the Eater by David Jinchenko. Ineffective list-like summary. The author says that only 5% of children had type 2 diabetes before 1994. In addition, They mention that today at least 30% of new childhood diabetes cases in the USA are type 2. They also say that more money is being spent to treat diabetes now, $100 billion a year. An effective summary. In the author's article, Don't Blame the Eater, David Zinchenko supports their position on the fast food industry by comparing today's rates of type 2 diabetes to those prior to 1994. David makes it clear that instances of type 2 diabetes have increased dramatically as has the cost of preventing the spread of this disease. Conclusion: An effective summary doesn't just report source information, but also indicates concisely how the ideas connect and why they matter. You'll also notice that the second example mentions the name of the author and the article, which
1: is an important way of signaling to your reader that you're referring to someone else's work rather than presenting your own original ideas.